I was able to meet and work with um, a variety of patients who have some of the genetic uh, diagnoses that we learned about in graduate school. Most significantly, uh, I also had an older sister who was a genetics patient at Boston Children's Hospital in the 90s. Um, and so I just feel really honored that my career path has taken me here to now working at Boston Children's. Um, and it's given a really beautiful symmetry to my life uh, and a nice way to honor my sister um, who, who had a genetic diagnosis herself. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusar Bassini. I'm a PhD student in computational biology at TPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a biotech futurist. The biotech futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech. But I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Good morning, good afternoon or good night. Today I am excited to discuss cutting-edge trends in genetic counseling, especially prenatal genetic counseling with the outstanding Victoria Soslovich, or as a friend, Tori. Tori works in the U-Lab, where she supports the logistical, educational, and emotional needs of patients and families enrolled in translational genomic studies. Tori is also an accomplished marathon runner and a podcast expert. Tori, I've learned so much from you during my stay in Boston. Thanks so much for being here. Can you briefly tell us your story, values, and what led you to what you do today? Thanks, Luca. Thank you for having me. Um, as, as Luca said, um, my name is Tori. I am a genetic counselor. I graduated from the Boston University Genetic Counseling Program a few years ago in 2019. Um, so that means that I, at the time of this podcast, have been a genetic counselor for about three and a half years. Um, and so today we'll talk about what genetic counseling is, both as a process and as a profession. Uh, and I'm excited to Uh, talk to you, Luca, about some really interesting topics within genetic counseling. Um, before we begin, I just have a few caveats or like disclaimers that I would like to cover. Um, first, that all of this is just my individual perspectives um, and some of my um, experiences and opinions. Um, but this is really, um, you know, genetic counseling and genetics in general is a really big field full of ethical, and social and medical and regulatory issues. Um, and so this will just be a small peek into a really large and complicated landscape. Um, so by no means is this comprehensive um, and I might not be correct about everything, but I will try my best. Um, and lastly, um, this discussion, just from my experiences, might be a little more um, USA system focused. 
The certification system for genetic counselors is the same between the United States and Canada. Um, but for the rest of the world, uh, the systems might be a little bit different. Um, so uh, I will mostly just speak about what my experiences have been and what I know, but just note that the systems might be a little bit different um, between different places as well. Sure. So let's talk about genetic counseling. Uh, you told me uh, genetic counseling is both a process and a profession. Can you describe what this means? Yeah. So I think this is really important to understand. Um, genetic counseling um, as a process is the process of helping individuals understand and adapt to how genetics impacts their health. Um, and so the two key words in that are understand. So this would lead to um, maybe some education, um, talking about um, clinical things, helping them understand and um, gain knowledge about genetics and about how that impacts them directly. And then the second keyword there is adapt. So this really leads into the counseling aspect of it. Um, and so helping families um, and individuals work through um, some of the questions, thoughts, challenges of how genetics and genetic disease might impact them psychologically, emotionally, within their family system. Um, and so that adaptation is really the counseling part of that process. This also might uh, play out in like clinical and logistical help that genetic counselors can provide to their healthcare as well. So that's genetic counseling as a process, which you know we'll talk a little bit about more um, in the rest of this episode. But then genetic counseling is also a profession. Um, so uh, it takes this process and creates a niche within the healthcare system where within a variety of professional settings, genetic counselors can um, learn about how genetics impacts that field of medicine um, and then be able to help individuals within um, those different sectors. Um, so genetic counselors work in a variety of professional settings the biggest and probably most well-known among these is genetic counselors who work in a clinical setting. So this means usually in a hospital system, in an academic medical center, working in departments such as genetics, oncology, reproductive genetics, cardiology, and neurology, um, among others. There are a lot of areas that are um, just starting to introduce genetic counselors as the understanding of genetics within those fields is expanding. Um, currently, to my knowledge, the most number of genetic counselors work in the oncology or cancer genetics space. So this would look like um, helping people um, understand the genetic risk factors for hereditary cancers, um, like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, um, and a variety of other ones. And then talking about genetic testing within that setting, what the potential results might be from that genetic test, um, and then the implications for screening, like earlier and more frequent mammograms or colonoscopies. Um, and then if there's any other um, surgeries that might be indicated um, and how that might impact other members of their family. Um, so oncology and cancer genetics is one that folks tend to maybe be a little more familiar with. Um, and um, maybe slightly easier to understand. Um, and so that process gets replicated for a variety of other medical specialties like cardiology and neurology as we learn more about genetics in those areas. So 
In addition to clinical genetics, genetic counselors can also work in other non-clinical settings, uh, including laboratory genetics, research genetics, which is what I do, um, work at biotech companies, genetic testing companies, um, maybe even in public health um, and a variety of other settings. The breadth of what genetic counselors are working on um, has really expanded in the past couple of decades. Um, and to me, this is really exciting that the voice of genetic counselors um, as professionals in both genetics and in you know, helping people um, psychologically and emotionally can be brought to other fields um, to help bring our expertise and our perspectives to these areas. Uh, it's really exciting to me. Yeah, this is outstanding. Thank you, Tori, for explaining. So relating to this, what's your typical day or week, if there's a typical day or week, or what is the typical day or week of a genetic counselor working like you in research? Yeah, uh, so my career is slightly different than the picture that I just painted about clinical genetic counseling, um, but there are a lot of similarities. Um, so the similarities would be that I help work with patients and their families to help them understand and adapt to how genetics might be impacting their life. Um, I use my organizational skills and my communication skills, um, and I really try to practice empathy in everything that I um, do within our work. But I currently am a research genetic counselor um, for the U Laboratory uh, at Boston Children's Hospital, which is where I met you, Luca. Um, and so this lab uh, works really at the intersection of genetics and neurology. So we work with um, patients and families who have diseases that impact the central nervous system. So that's the brain and the spinal cord, um, and also sometimes the eye. Uh, so we work on a small handful of ophthalmological diseases as well. Um, we also work in the um, kind of newly minted term of interventional genetics. We've already discussed this with Winston Jan in a previous episode, indeed. Oh, great. Okay, well, Winston um, probably already did a way better job um, of explaining this than I would. Um, but essentially using um, genetic knowledge to guide therapies and to guide treatments, um, either you know, gene-related therapies or otherwise. Um, so taking genetics more from like a descriptive stance, um, you know, describing what genetic things are, doing diagnostic testing, taking it one step further into therapies, treatments, um, and other interventions. Um, and this is really exciting with the um, improvements and advances within genomic medicine in the past few years. Yeah, I think we'll have space later in the episode to discuss how genetic counseling relates to recent advances in the field of genomics in general and interventional genomics specifically. So within the U Laboratory, uh, I am a liaison between researchers, uh, patients and families, and other areas like their healthcare providers or patient advocacy organizations. We receive a large number of inquiries um, to our laboratory asking about our work. So I feel these inquiries and we try our best to respond to everyone individually um, and try to, if we can't help them directly, then try to connect them with researchers, with resources that might be helpful for them. Um, I also, for the families that are enrolled in our studies, I help facilitate the informed consent process. And then I also help with regulatory submissions, um, some project management. And then uh, I see my role as just helping families with whatever they need, logistically, educationally, emotionally, 
um, helping set and manage expectations as the study moves forward. Wonderful. So can you briefly explain to us what is an informed consent in this case? I mean, specifically for research in uh, interventional genomics. Yeah. So the informed consent process is a process uh, that um, works to help patients uh, and their family members understand uh, what the research process will be like for them. Um, and then any details regarding risks, limitations, privacy and confidentiality, the logistics of being in the study. Um, and as I said before, setting and managing those expectations over time. Um, it's also a two-pronged approach where we have um, a written consent form, which describes um, everything that I just listed all out in the form that um, families can read um, and can keep like a copy for themselves to reference um, if they have questions in the future. Um, and then it also is a verbal process where um, families will meet with me or maybe one of our other um, people in the lab to discuss the details of the study, have a chance to ask questions. Um, and the, the key word here is informed. So we want uh, patients and families to feel like they have a really good understanding of what participating the research study will be like. And then my most important job is to set expectations um, and discuss the risks and limitations. So even though these risks and these limitations might be challenging to discuss or challenging to hear, um, they might be troubling or disappointing, um, I want to make sure that um, families have a really good informed understanding um, of what the research process will be like. Sure, that's very clear. Thank you, Tori. So maybe it's time to discuss what led you to the ULAB, what led you to genetic counseling and what drives you, your passions, uh, your biological interests. Uh, I always knew I wanted to study biology. Um, that was never even a question for me. Um, and I'm not really sure why, I just have always really loved it. Um, and so uh, in undergrad, I studied biology and I had minors in chemistry and education. I have always had an interest in science, but also I love working with people and I knew that I wanted that to be an aspect of my career. So I thought about science education, I thought about public health, um, I thought about a variety of career paths that combined um, science and also working with people. And so my senior year of my undergrad, I took an immunology class. Um, and in this class, we, instead of lab, occasionally we would do um, basically what I now come to understand as like genetic counseling role plays, where we would get a case of a patient with an immunological um, genetic disease like um, 22Q deletion syndrome or ataxia telangiectasia. Um, and we would get paired with a partner and review that information and look up uh, what genetic testing might need to be done, what clinical follow-up uh, might need to be done for that patient, how those genetic changes impacted their immune system. Uh, and I, through this process, um, found it really interesting. Um, and I also saw that I, I figured that, wow, this would be really helpful for the person on the other side of this. Um, in that case, like a parent of a child with um, an immunological disease. And so I went to talk to my professor um, 
and you know just said how much I liked it. Um, and she's like, oh, there's a word for this. It's genetic counseling. Um, and that specific professor um, had thought about genetic counseling as a career path for herself um, at one point. So she kind of like mixed it into a lot um, of her, her lectures and you know things that we were doing within this class. So this was a really exciting moment for me um, that once I started to research genetic counseling as a career path, uh, it was like, oh, wow, this is it. Um, and that was a really exciting um, series of moments for me. And it really felt like all my prior interests and my past experiences were coming together. Um, so for example, uh, I had taken um, American Sign Language classes for like six years at Beverly School for the Deaf in Massachusetts. Um, and so I had decently proficient American Sign Language um, and there are a lot of um, genetic um, diagnoses that um, result in deafness. Um, so that's something that I have run into as a genetic counselor. Um, I also worked at the Paul Center, uh, which is in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, for um, also quite a long time um, with patients who, or um, at that point, students who um, have a variety of physical and intellectual disabilities. Um, and so I was able to meet and work with um, a variety of patients who have some of the genetic uh, diagnoses that we learned about in graduate school. Most significantly, uh, I also had an older sister who was a genetics patient at Boston Children's Hospital in the 90s. Um, and so I just feel really honored that my career path has taken me here to now working at Boston Children's. Um, and it's given a really beautiful symmetry to my life. Uh, and a nice way to honor my sister um, who, who had a genetic diagnosis herself. Wonderful, thank you so much for sharing with us, Tori. So I think now it's time to discuss a couple of words that will turn useful to understand better what genetic counseling is and for the rest of this episode. So first, talking about genetic testing, I think it's very fundamental to distinguish between presymptomatic and predictive versus diagnostic. Can you describe uh, what is the distinction here? So when genetic counselors are coordinating genetic testing for a patient, um, they might order a variety of genetic tests. And as you said, they can fall in these two categories. So pre-symptomatic genetic testing would be done prior to disease onset. So for example, this might be done in an individual who, due to their family history, you might think has a hereditary cancer risk, but that individual has not had cancer themselves. So prior to potential disease onset, um, that would be pre-symptomatic for that person. Another example of pre-symptomatic genetic testing uh, is genetic testing for something like Huntington disease, in which someone uh, might be at risk based on their family history, uh, but they might not show symptoms yet, but might decide um, to get testing ahead of time. On the other side, there is diagnostic genetic testing. This is done so that we can gain a genetic understanding of the symptoms that are already exist. So that presenting phenotype. And this can be really helpful for management decisions, for uh, like what we do in the U-Lab targeted therapies, and then can also psychologically be really helpful, um, like in potentially relieving guilt, having an understanding of what caused the disease, um, and for finding um, and connecting people 
with similar experiences and similar diagnoses together. Yeah, that makes absolutely sense. So to quickly sum up, the difference here is that a pre-symptomatic test is a test that people order before there's any symptom, but when there is some risk, for instance, uh, because your parents have something that is caused by some genetics. On the other hand, a diagnostic test tries to explain the possible genetic underlying uh, mechanisms of a given uh, symptom that you present. So these are examples of genetic tests. And maybe Tori, do you want to spend some more words about genetic testing in general when it is ordered? I mean, you've already given us some beautiful examples, but what's the role of genetic testing today? How extensive is its use in a clinical setting and especially for newborns? What do you see in the foreseeable future for genetic testing? So when a genetic counselor meets with a patient, um, they a big question is determining what genetic testing might be appropriate for that patient or that family, um, if any. So there are some situations where someone might meet with a genetic counselor uh, and due to one reason or another, no genetic testing might be appropriate in that situation. And the genetic counselor should be able to sit down with that family and explain why that is the situation. Um, also, genetic testing should always be uh, optional and should always be up to the discretion of the patient. So when, just like we talked about informed consent in the research setting, um, there's always informed consent for genetic testing um, and it should really um, be a two-way conversation between the genetic counselor and the patient um, or their client in order to um, discuss if genetic testing is right for them at that time. So when a genetic counselor orders a genetic test, um, and just for the sake of clarity in this example, I'll use hereditary cancer testing. So say if a genetic counselor orders a hereditary cancer risk test, some things that they might discuss with the patient would be the timelines. So how long it might take to get the results back from that genetic test, um, and if it impacts any other timelines for their medical care. Um, so if it needs to be expedited uh, for another reason, things like that. Um, the logistics of the genetic test, so they might discuss if, discuss if it is a blood draw or it could be a saliva sample or something else. And then the genetic counselor will discuss the possible results of the test. These possible results for most genetic tests typically look something like one option being positive one option being negative, and one option being uncertain. So what this means is that the positive result would be that the genetic test was able to discover or elucidate or identify a genetic explanation for the symptoms at hand. So in this case, um, this would be that the individual's family history or personal history of cancer um, probably has some genetic component to it based on the results of that test. A negative genetic test would be that in the testing that was done, it was not able to identify a genetic explanation for the symptoms at hand. So this does not necessarily mean that whatever the patient is experiencing is not genetic or hereditary in any way, it just means that the test couldn't identify it. Um, and all sorts of different types of genetic tests have different limitations. So a genetic counselor should discuss with that individual exactly what that negative result means and if there's any limitations to that type of test. Um, 
And so that ends up being usually a very specific, um, nuanced conversation based on the characteristics of that situation. Lastly, uh, a genetic test can have an uncertain result. And so within the genetic counseling and genetics literature, you might read this as a variant of uncertain significance or a variant of unknown significance. Um, and then this gets put into an acronym of VUS. Um, and so this is a result where um, a genetic difference between what the patient has and a, a control reference sequence um, is found. So something is a change within the genetic sequence, but we're not quite sure if that's just natural variation, um, like the non-problematic natural variations that cause some people to have blue eyes and some people to have brown eyes, um, or if it is indeed a change that causes something um, that results in disease. Um, so these uncertain results, um, a genetic counselor can talk about the implications of them um, and the limitations of our knowledge of genetics and why that leads to these uncertain results. But then occasionally in the future, the genetic testing lab will be able to do what's called reclassification. So they take a look again at these uncertain results and say, did we learn anything new? in the you know, previous years that changes our understanding of this variant. And nine times out of 10, um, these uncertain variants get uh, what we call downgraded. And we learn that they are just benign, naturally occurring changes that do not contribute to disease, just part of our natural variation between individuals. Um, but then about 10% of the time, they do get um, what we call upgraded to uh, pathogenic or a likely disease-causing um, genetic change. So uh, our understanding of genetics and genetic variation is always changing, um, and you know we're learning more and more. And we tried to, um, as a genetics and genetic counseling community, um, apply that to our classification of genetic um, testing and those genetic variants. Yeah, wonderful explanation, Tori. Thank you. So I think Tori has just touched on a very fundamental point that is knowledge is evolving. Uh, so also what we can understand about gene variants is evolving uh, and it depends on what researcher found out. So as a molecular biologist does bioinformatician on my side, I understand uh, the process of genetic counseling as something that is shifting day by day thanks to what we understand in a research setting. And this relates to gene panels. So what genes we test and what we can infer for a given number of genes depends on what we know currently. And also, you know, the interpretation, as Tori mentioned, is changing. I mean, gene panels are fundamental because they represent the best of our knowledge. So we can trust them generally, but at the same time, we have to make sure that we don't add excessive number of genes to gene panels because that may result in overdiagnosis in case uh, the knowledge on that given gene that we may want to add on a gene panel is uncertain today. So it's always uh, um, you know, uh, a thing of costs and uh, gains and uh, you have to balance between the two. So variant calling is still limited. We can understand something about genes, but we are still in the process of learning. And as, a, as such, we need to come up with gene panels and 
testing technologies that can really make the most of what we know now, but at the same time, don't try to guess more than what we know. And I think that there's a nice paragraph on um, an article that uh, Tori sent me that I will post in the um, description of this podcast, but I'd be happy to briefly read because, you know, that's also inspiring. So the paragraph says so. What message does it send to people with disabilities, their families and their advocates if we continually add, seemingly willy-nilly, more and more genetic conditions to a prenatal testing list, especially if they obtain no tangible benefit from testing? More testing readily begets further routinization of testing. And when you start testing lots of pregnancies for lots of conditions, you start creeping further into eugenic territory. So that's also opening more and more questions. What I want to point here is that, uh, you know, gene panels and genetic testing must always and always be connected to a tangible benefit for, for patients. And it's always evolving thanks to research. So I hope I didn't steal too much of Tori's time conversation. And I want to go back to what Tori was saying, uh, asking her two questions at once that came up listening to what she was saying. So first, if you Tori could clarify the difference between a mutation and a variant or the definition of a two. And on the other side, how do you communicate uncertainty clearly? What are the strategies to communicate uncertainty to patients? As, as we said, genetic tests are to a certain extent uncertain. Look, I think you bring up a really good point uh, that more information isn't always more answers. So with genetic tests, um, we might want to cast a wide net so that we can get as much information as possible. Um, but we also want to make sure that the information that we're gathering and we're communicating is meaningful to that patient and their family or whoever the recipient of that genetic information is. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. I thought that is a really important point. Um, so when we talk about the results from these genetic tests, um, we typically the meaningful or interesting results are what we call a variant or a mutation. So this just means a deviation, a change from the reference sequence, um, which is um, a sequence that we, you know, we have a decent understanding um, is a, a good control and not indicative of um, pathogenic variants that might cause disease. Um, I typically use the words variant or genetic variant uh, and mutation interchangeably. Um, there's some really interesting discussions within the genetic counseling community about this terminology. Um, so variant describes uh, like that actual genetic change and is descriptive in that it's just a variation. Um, so it seems a little more neutral, right? Um, whereas mutation might be a little more of a loaded word um, where, you know, we're thinking about um, it being mutated. Maybe that is more um, descriptive of something that is pathogenic or something that one might ascribe a quality of like being abnormal um, or it just might have a more negative connotation to it. So there's a really interesting discussion about which one of these words we should use and when. Um, also, some people think of mutation as like the process of getting a variant. Um, but in my experience, I have a job as a genetic counselor to make sure that um, I'm communicating clearly and in a way that is relevant to the patient or the client that I'm working with. And I have also found that in the general public, 
um, and maybe due to the media or how things are presented in like biology textbooks or whatever, people tend to be a little more familiar with the word mutation. Um, and so for clarity, I either tend to revert to using the word mutation or at the beginning of the call um, in what we call like the contracting expectation setting period, I might say, um, I might give this distinction uh, between mutations and variants, um, ask if the patient has heard of either of them, uh, if there's a terminology that they would prefer to use, um, and then uh, explain that I might uh, almost accidentally use them interchangeably, um, but just for clarity. Sure. So my next question still on terminology would be the distinction between screening and diagnostic and the distinction between patient and client. So we can next jump to genetic counseling, having all the fundamental words in place. Yeah. Um, so going along with understanding um, the pre-symptomatic or predictive genetic tests, along with diagnostic tests, um, we can also take the variety of genetic tests that are available and split them into this um, other two sets of categories which are screening versus diagnostic. Screening tests are used to uh, maybe more quickly, more easily, more accessibly split groups of individuals into a higher or lower risk category. This is done in newborn screening um, in which this is done on pretty much all newborns um, across the United States. And they look for diseases that are early onset and have a very clear intervention associated with them and that are um, significantly um, serious enough that it warrants this early, early newborn screening. Um, but this newborn screening is a screening test. It's not perfect. Um, and it looks just to um, put the patients into either uh, low risk for uh, any one of these diseases or high risk. So that high risk result might need to be follow up with um, something called diagnostic testing, um, where one would get a more definitive yes or no result from that test. Um, so screening tests just have a larger margin of error, uh, but they are really helpful from like a public health standpoint, uh, whereas diagnostic tests um, have that more definitive yes or no quality to the results that we obtain from them. And then one more uh, piece of vocabulary that I would like to discuss is that um, the distinction or the use of um, the recipient of genetic counseling might be called a patient in some scenarios and might be called a client in other scenarios. A lot of the genetic counseling literature that is out there uses the word client, uh, which is consistent with other types of counseling like mental health counseling, um, things like that. Um, I work in an academic medical center, so I often say patient, um, but I, this is another situation, maybe similar to mutation versus variant, where um, I might use these interchangeably. So finally, it's time to delve deeper into genetic counseling, right? Yep. Okay, so what are the goals of genetic counseling? Uh, the goals of genetic counseling will be different based on the specific situation, um, but generally are to help facilitate um, the patient or the client learning about the genetic qualities um, of their uh, health or other situation, um, and then facilitating what we call um, non-directive or some neutral counseling, 
So this is a description of kind of the social rule that genetic counselors have with their patients and their clients. And this is important for facilitating informed decision-making that's based on the patient's priorities and their values and what is meaningful to them and their family. Uh, and so genetic counselors should be there to help with uh, explaining educationally the details about genetic testing or other aspects that they're discussing that day, help with logistics of anything that that family needs, supporting them emotionally through the process, but through that, um, through that process, striking a balance between um, giving information, being informed and being helpful while also still being neutral um, and guiding the patient and their family to what really reflects their values and what reflects their priorities. Yeah, so I guess um, we should jump to the challenges and the genetic counseling profession, maybe we can start by describing uh, uh, how typically, let's say, in the situation of a parent uh, having a child that receives a, a worrisome result from a genetic test, how does a parent meet or contact a genetic counseling and what happens during the first times they meet? Yeah. So in a situation where someone is meeting with a genetic counselor for the first time, um, as in the situation that you gave Luca, um, they will probably meet with the genetic counselor, maybe also alongside a physician, like a geneticist, an oncologist, a cardiologist, um, and will meet with both of those healthcare providers. The genetic counselor usually starts with something called contracting, where this is just a check-in to kind of get to know each other get a mutual understanding of the goals of that appointment, about what the patient and the family want to get out of that appointment, and then laying out um, like an outline of what will be discussed that day, setting some expectations. Um, next, in a lot of genetic counseling scenarios, they'll take a family history and a medical history. So this is getting an understanding of the genetic and hereditary background um, of that family. Sometimes this process can bring up really difficult things. Our relationships with our families are not always easy. Um, and then sometimes we have to ask about, um, you know, people in one's family who have passed away or who have been sick. Um, so this can sometimes be a sensitive um, thing to work through, but is important for, you know, getting an understanding of, um, you know, how genetics interplays with our health. Uh, and then the genetic counselor will probably talk about um, you know, why we're thinking about genetic testing, what the implications of that are, and then go over some of those potential results that we discussed before. Um, and then the genetic counselor should be available to that patient to discuss any concerns, any worries, um, and anything that they would like to talk about emotionally. And really, um, I think that uh, a good genetic counselor should be able to lay out, you know, the risks, the limitations, the challenges, but then also foster um, empowerment um, within the family to feel like they are in control of their situation as well. Wonderful. So continuing the discussion about the challenges within the genetic counseling profession, can you describe for us the historical origins of genetic counseling and also its relationship with eugenics? Yeah, um, so there are some significant challenges within genetic counseling as a profession. 
Um, historically, genetics in general and genetic counseling as a profession um, was associated with the eugenics movement, um, which, Luca, I'm hoping you will discuss in great detail maybe in a future episode of this podcast. Um, but essentially, um, genetics for a long time was used within this eugenics movement um, to wrongly justify that uh, some genetic makeups were better than others and to promote um, reproduction for some people and not others um, and really um, resulted in a variety of atrocities uh, within the United States and worldwide. So a lot of what the genetic counseling profession is tasked with now is separating from this, uh, from eugenics, but also very firmly and clearly acknowledging that this is part of the history of genetics and genetic counseling um, so that we can address that head on um, and not pretend like it never happened. Um, I am a firm believer that being very um, clear, upfront, thoughtful and including this in genetic counseling education um, is really important for history not repeating itself. In addition to that, another challenge within the genetic counseling profession is that there is a lack of uh, racial, ethnic, gender, and socioeconomic diversity. Most genetic counselors identify as white women um, who also come from more privileged, um, higher socioeconomic backgrounds. So this is something that the genetic counseling profession is really trying to tackle um, with providing scholarships for underrepresented communities um, and trying to increase um, awareness and accessibility of genetic counseling, both as a process and as a profession, uh, to individuals who have been historically underserved. Yeah, so I've got a curiosity I think I never asked you. So what was the reaction of the genetic counseling community to the Yanqui case, the Chinese CRISPR babies? I mean, that's something big that recently happened. I think you were still finishing your studies, but maybe you have a glimpse of what genetic counseling told the, the journals and the science about this. Yeah, so you're right. When that event occurred, I was in the last semester of my genetic counseling training, I believe. And I remember discussing it during a class that I was taking uh, along with a lot of my other genetic counseling uh, classmates called Business of Biotech. And so in this class, we were talking about um, different types of um, ge genomic medicine modalities and it was really pertinent to a lot of our discussions. And I think something that the genetic counseling profession faces as a challenge is that um, there's really complex societal understanding about genetics um, and genetics in general can really easily bastardize um, if not taken uh, seriously and make sure that um, vulnerable communities are protected. Um, so this was definitely a concern for the genetic counseling community because I think it just adds to this irresponsible use of genetics um, and some, you know, something that was, was quite concerning. Um, in our work now in the U-Lab, we're also concerned about this um, and about use of genomic technologies um, because we want to make sure that um, they're being used in a responsible way to make sure that patients and families are empowered but also protected if they're in a vulnerable situation. And then we also want to make sure that um, individuals who are using this um, 
using these technologies are um, open and willing to sharing some of the challenges, some of the side effects so that the whole field can grow um, and learn all together. I think that relating to eugenics, uh, we should briefly also discuss uh, the challenges in prenatal diagnostic testing and uh, prenatal genetic counseling. Um, nice paragraph that I read in one of the articles you shared with me, Tori, and I will link in the podcast notes, is that genetic counselors both offer prenatal diagnostic testing that allows individuals the opportunity to avoid the birth of a child with a disability and they advocate for the rights of individuals who have a disability. Another paragraph says that the guidelines should also strongly recommend research into specific ways that prenatal knowledge of any condition included in the panel, I mean, of gene tests, either do or don't enhance obstetric neonatal management and or prenatal emotional preparation and adaptation to having a child with a condition. Maybe we've already started discussing with from time to time in this episode, but can you comment on these observations and in general on prenatal diagnostic testing and prenatal genetic counseling? Yeah, um, I'd like to start by saying that I, while I am a genetic counselor that is technically certified to provide prenatal and reproductive genetic counseling, um, I am not practicing in the prenatal and reproductive space. Um, so. I am, you know, still retain a lot of interest in this, um, still talk with my prenatal and reproductive genetics colleagues, um, but I'm not like currently practicing in this space. Um, so there are probably a lot of other prenatal genetic counselors who um, could speak to this maybe in more, um, more depth and more lived experience than I could. Um, but Luca, I think you're right. There are a lot of uh, ethical and social issues that come up with genetic counseling in general. And then, um, due to the sensitivities of reproductive rights and um, due to the sensitivities of prenatal genetics in general, I think that these ethical and social concerns get heightened within that specific space for a very good reason. So um, it is a really difficult question and a really difficult balancing act of um, allowing um, individuals who are carrying pregnancies um, to be able to choose um, what they do with that pregnancy and what they do with their body um, and be able to have, uh, as we talked about with informed consent earlier, to have informed decisions about how their pregnancy is going. Um, and so that's on one side. And on the other side, thinking about individuals with disabilities and what the message might send when we are doing prenatal screening and prenatal testing, um, that one can imagine that this might seem like um, that is bringing a lower ascribed value to their quality of life or to their uh, value as individuals in general. Um, so the genetic counseling profession and society in general is tasked with this really challenging um, balancing act of autonomy for individuals carrying pregnancies and then also autonomy of individuals with disability. Um, and so there are a lot of really valid perspectives um, on all sides of this argument um, and it's important to listen um, and to think about how this impacts us medically, how it impacts us socially, and how it impacts us psychologically. Uh, and so to also provide one example that I think about a lot in this, um, as I'm a genetic counselor who works with pediatric patients, so children, um, who have very severe neurological diseases. So um, really rapid neurological decline, 
um, loss of vision, loss of speech, loss of movement, have dozens of seizures per day, um, and have early, uh, can have really significant um, medical complications and Sometimes these diseases also result um, in death during childhood. So these are really severe conditions. Um, and in an interesting and to me upsetting way, a lot of these very severe diseases are not screened for um, standardly in the prenatal space. And this is because they are very rare. Um, and so the likelihood of a genetic test picking one of these up um, is quite low. And so, um, in a lot of places in the United States, it's not common to screen for these very, very severe conditions uh, just because they're uncommon. Whereas a lot of pregnancies, um, especially in individuals carrying a pregnancy who are over 35, um, most pregnancies are screened for Down syndrome, um, which is more common, um, but uh, one might argue less severe than some of the diseases that I just described that we work with. Um, now it's time to jump to the barriers for effective genetic counseling. I mean, there are several possible barriers ranging from the financial to the emotional side of things. Can you describe briefly them for us, please? Um, so some of these barriers, as you listed, the first really being um, regarding access to genetic counselors. So this might be due to that there might not be a lot of genetic counselors within their area um, or that the financial barrier to seeing a genetic counselor is too high. Um, I think that in the past few years, this we've made some improvements to access to genetic counseling um, because um, with a lot of places being able to move to virtual or remote telehealth appointments, um, the ability for people who live in rural uh, areas or who have trouble getting to their local hospital for one reason or another are able to see genetic counselors um, just over telehealth, which I think has, has done a really excellent job for access. Um, for example, a lot of the families that we work with, um, you know, might have child, children with mobility aids. Um, it might just be a lot of um, a lot of time, money, and um, to get to the academic medical center. And so it's good that we have this option, um, especially in a counseling scenario where most of the time we're just talking. Um, there are also emotional barriers to genetic counseling. Um, so I think some individuals might be hesitant to see a genetic counselor um, due to societal stigmas about um, mental health, seeking mental health help, um, just due to that word counseling within the um, profession name. Um, and also there might just be a lot of like um, fears about, you know, finding out about genetic things, guilt, and how that might radiate through the family. And then lastly, a barrier for effective genetic counseling that I think is very significant is the lack of diversity in genomic data sets. So a couple times in this podcast so far, we've talked about the reference sequence, which is what we use to help us determine what is a genetic variant and if that genetic variant is pathogenic or not. Um, unfortunately, the genomic data sets that we use for these references and for what we use for a lot of the databases for genetic um, and variant interpretation um, are overwhelmingly from individuals of like white European background um, and are not overall very diverse. So this results 
in that a lot of types of genetic results are like more accurate or better understood for individuals of white European backgrounds. Um, and this of course is wrong. Um, and so there's been a big push and there should be continued um, efforts to try to increase the diversity in these genomic data sets and in the tools that we're using for variate interpretation. Wonderful. So something that we've started discussing here and there, I suppose, is how the genetic counselors communicate uncertainty effectively. Can you go deeper for us into this, please? So genetic counselors in all contexts are responsible for communicating results that might be really uncertain. So some examples of this are that, say, one might come back with uh, increased risk for hereditary type of cancer, um, but that result might just tell them that they're at increased risk for cancer by a certain percentage, but it doesn't tell them a yes or no if they will develop it. Um, maybe in, in the work that we do at Boston Children's Hospital, um, we give uncertainty regarding timelines of the research study. Um, in prenatal setting, there might be some screening tests done that um, might put into a high, high risk or low risk category um, of a certain um, test for pregnancy, but might not give a, a very definitive answer um, that might need to be followed up with future testing or might just remain uncertain depending on the situation. Genetic counselors are trained to communicate and work through this uncertainty. Uh, and I think that this is done by number one, trying to um, educate and set expectations right at the beginning so that these uncertain results hopefully don't come out of nowhere, that there has been some adequate pre-test genetic counseling to discuss the possibility of uncertain results and set expectations for how those are managed. And then I think genetic counselors should also provide a supportive role while families are making difficult decisions or hearing these uncertain results. So being that um, helpful but also neutral party um, to support the, the patient and their family during that time. And then I think when this is done appropriately, that this fosters empowerment um, and resilience that even though there is that uncertainty, um, that we can work medically, psychologically, socially, and within the family uh, to foster um, empowerment um, over the situation. Um, and one, one way that I really try to and like to do this in our work is um, if there are family members who are together, so say um, to biological parents uh, or say a parent with like grandparents or aunt or uncle or whoever they have as their support system as trying to foster um, really thoughtfully them relying on one another within that support system. Um, even though that is really difficult, parenting a child with a rare disease is extraordinarily difficult. Um, a lot of times there are other siblings in the situation um, that you know need parenting and need family support as well. But I believe that as much as the family can work through those challenges thoughtfully, um, see each other as helpful partners within working through this like devastating, really difficult situation, then I think that that will be psychologically and emotionally really beneficial for the patient, for the parents, and for the other siblings too. Um, that regardless of the uncertainty or regardless of um, genetics' true ability to help in that situation, I think that emotional family empowerment um, can be really, really pivotal. 
I think we've already touched this a few times in digressions because in the end this is just the main theme of this podcast episode, genetic testing. So we've already discussed uh, what are the possible results of a genetic testing, how it works, but can you describe for us deeper a few things relating to genetic testing such as when it might be appropriate, so when do you suggest a genetic test to be performed or about the timeline and the logistics? I'm looking forward to hearing what you say about this story. Yeah. So uh, as as I will probably as I've said before and will probably say again, <laughs> the answer to this question is really dependent on the clinical situation. Um, but overall, the reasons um, why a genetic test might be indicated would be number one that there is a decent clinical hypothesis that the uh, Symptoms at hand have some genetic um, origin to them or some genetic contribution to them. Um, So in pediatric genetics, this often tends to be a really wide net uh, because there's a lot of genetic things that, um, you know, interplay with our health. Um, In the cancer setting, um, there are some types of cancers that might throw up uh, kind of a red flag that there might be a hereditary syndrome running through the family. So those might be um, cancer diagnosed at a very young age, multiple family members with the same type of cancer um, or cancer that happens in the same organ, but bilaterally. So like breast cancer in like separate primaries in both breasts um, or kidney cancer in both cancers that seem like they um, popped up each individually on their own. Um, And so some of these situations, um, in addition to specific cancer diagnoses like ovarian cancer, um, might throw up um, a red flag that there might be um, genetic testing indicated. And those are all laid out really clearly in a set of guidelines through um, NCCN um, that folks can reference and they're updated as we learn more about um, genetics in general. So that's all to say, number one, um, that there is some decent hypothesis that the situation could have a genetic contribution um, that could possibly be elucidated by a genetic test. And then the second uh, reason is that upon discussion with the family, that genetic counseling seems reasonable for them at that point in time. So that this is information that they want, this is information that is meaningful to them potentially, that this is information that they could use, um, and that the emotional or social or other barriers to genetic testing um, are either, um, you know, low or manageable or or not present. Um, So taken together, some suspicion of genetic disease combined with um, patient or client's um, understanding and openness to genetic testing um, is kind of the uh, situation that I would look for as a genetic counselor. Yeah, that's inspiring. So how do you typically think that the results of a genetic test impact the people who asked or who received the genetic testing and their family members on the medical, psychological and social sides? Yeah, so there are a variety of ways that results um, of a genetic test can impact an individual. Um, I, I like to believe that these results are overall positive um, and that is why we do the genetic test in the first place and that this can be 
meaningful and useful result. But there are a lot of challenges that a genetic test result can um, can cause as well. So some of the positive aspects to receiving a genetic test result might be in the case of a positive result, um, one might get an explanation for the symptoms at hand. Um, one might be able to connect with a community um, that also has been affected by that um, genetic diagnosis. Um, there might be me medical management decisions like treatment options, surgery, screening, medications that uh, might be more effective based on that positive result. So those are a few ways that getting a positive result can be beneficial um, for a patient or their family. For a negative result, um, this could be um, maybe quite relieving um, that uh, that negative result means that they did not inherit a hereditary um, disease or that means they're at lower risk for something that uh, before, based on their family history, they thought they might be higher risk of. Um, but then these results also have challenges associated with them. Um, there's a huge emotional burden um, with getting a positive genetic testing result. Um, it's really solidifying um, the diagnosis and the situation, which can be really psychologically uh, difficult to process. Um, and then this can also be associated with feel feelings of um, guilt or shame or worry um, that are associated with that result, um, which I like to remind people, we don't choose our genes. You know, none of this is really in our control. Um, so genetic counselors, um, if they're doing their job, should be able or should um, you know, feel empowered to try to assuage those feelings of guilt or shame, but often that's easier said than done. Um, in the situation of a negative test result, um, it can be also difficult, say if someone is experiencing active symptoms, um, that if the test result is negative, then it might be feel really um, concerning that they still don't have an answer, might be disappointing to not have an answer. Um, and as we talked about before, that uncertainty can be really difficult psychologically as well. Sure, so Tori, Anything about genetic testing, but I'm forgetting to ask you. No, that seems like a pretty good um, explanation um, or a pretty good discussion. One other thing that I can add, um, or we can add this at the end, is that if folks are interested in learning more about genetic counseling, both as a process and as a profession, uh, that they can go to the National Society of Genetic Counselors website. Um, and so this website provides up-to-date information about genetic counseling um, for individuals who might be interested in pursuing genetic counseling as a career. Um, and then for people who think they might want to see a genetic counselor uh, for something that's happening with their health or their family history, then the National Society of Genetic Counselors also has this Find a Genetic Counselor tool. Um, and so this will help point you to a genetic counselor that you could see in your area. Um, so that's a really helpful tool for, for the public. One last resource that um, Luca and I have been referencing that um, is really interesting um, academic blog about hot topics in genetic counseling is called the DNA Exchange. Um, I highly recommend that if this episode was interesting to you um, and that you're interested in some ethical um, and social topics within genetics that you check out the G DNA Exchange. Um, they post articles about 
Um, they're like opinion pieces about all sorts of topics within genetics and current events. Um, and so I highly recommend that you take a look there if you are interested. Nice. So we'll make sure to post the links to this um, resources that Tori mentioned uh, in the description to this podcast. So now, Tori, it's time to ask you four a little bit more specific questions. The first would be, how do parents in your experience, I mean, emotionally go through the process of genetic counseling? Yeah. Um, so again, this is just my experience. And for context, um, as I mentioned before, I'm working with mostly parents of children who have um, quite severe neurological diseases. And the answer to this is that parents go through this process in a variety of different ways. Um, some families are really um, like data-driven and are really interested in learning about the scientific aspects of all of it um, and are uh, motivated by you know, to learn through that mechanism, whereas other families uh, really focus more on kind of the emotional impacts. Um, and we spend a lot of our time um, talking about those social, psychological, and familial aspects of things. And um, in my experience, I've found that it's really interesting of like, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to predict how a family will um, interact um, and react to the information that um, I'm giving them within a genetic counseling session. So in my experience, it seems not to correlate um, with race, with sex, with gender, with um, what they do as a career, with where they are located geographically, uh, with like any factor that I can think of. Um, I have not seen any patterns in kind of you know, reaction style and coping mechanisms um, versus any of those um, kind of demographic qualities that I've listed. Um, and I just thought, thought that this is really interesting. Um, one pattern um, that has been described in the rare disease literature um, and that I have observed in my genetic counseling um, career so far is that Within the family unit, there usually tends to be a somewhat like division of labor between when we're thinking about a child with complex medical needs, their healthcare and participating in research and all interacting with the patient advocacy organizations. There's often one parent who seems to spearhead a lot of that. Um, so it seems to be like the medical um, and scientific manager, if you will, um, whereas the other parent um, is really picking up the slack for um, a lot of the other parental duties, uh, like helping take care of the other children, providing financially for the family, um, doing other logistical things like this. Um, this is obviously a great generalization. Um, we do work with families who are single parents, which I um, acknowledge is very, very, very difficult, um, or families who have um, different structures, um, different family-like unit structures as well. Um, but I just find this an interesting um, observation um, and potentially helpful for healthcare providers and helping families um, navigate through the beginnings of a diagnosis um, and just acknowledging that um, families do whatever they need to do um, in order to best take care of themselves and their children. Wonderful, that's interesting, thank you. So the second very specific question would be, 
How do you and our genetic counselors still to your experience develop strategies to be supportive uh, in difficult decisions uh, in cases when, in which there is no clear right or better answers, let's say? Yeah, I think that the most important role that a genetic counselor could play in a decision process like that is really first validating that that decision is difficult. And then also validating that there's no clear or right or better answer, but that the right answer will come from uh, that family recognizing, identifying and using their priorities and their values in order to make that decision. Um, and really trying to encourage that empowerment that whatever decision they choose to make for themselves or their family is the right one for them. Um, and to try not to compare with other families or other situations, um, no matter how difficult that might be. Yeah, wonderful. So another question I'd be curious to ask you is how has genetic counseling changed in the recent years with the advent of new technologies, say sequencing based technologies and many others? So something that I love about genetic counseling is that genetics is always changing and we're always learning more and more. Um, so it's been really exciting to even think back to when I was starting genetic counseling school, not that long ago, five years ago, um, that so much has changed um, and you know we're just learning more every day, even though that sounds cliche, it's very true. So some ways that genetic counseling has changed within that time has been um, a lot driven due to changes in like the recommendations that come from professional societies about what types of testing should be done. Um, so earlier I mentioned those NCCN um, cancer risk uh, testing guidelines. So those have been updated as we've learned more um, and that's really changed how cancer genetic counselors approach genetic testing for their patients. Um, overwhelmingly that has been more inclusive um, of genes and of syndromes. Um, and then in addition to that, um, we've had expansions in the incidental findings that um, genetic tests might look for and in what is screened for in the prenatal setting with um, carrier screening and things like that. Um, and then Genetic counselors, as I mentioned before, have been working in a variety of different areas um, outside of the clinic, um, including biotech companies, laboratories, um, and in other more kind of non-traditional roles, which I think is exciting for the genetic counseling profession in general. So I guess now it's time for my last very typical, very awkward, uh, very uh, without answer, let's say, question, which is what are the major trends, hopes, and challenges in five years span or in 20 to 30 years span from now on and relating to this what are your dreams as a genetic counselor as a professionalist in this career so for genetic counseling as a profession in the coming years i would like to see increased diversity within the profession so increased diversity for genetic counselors in order for us to better serve and help our patients and then in addition to that, um, better diversity for the genomic data sets, as I mentioned earlier, um, and just building a better and more resilient um, understanding of genetics that encompasses um, lots of people and lots of um, opinions as well. 
for my goals as a genetic counselor, uh, honestly, I really love the work that I'm doing now. Um, I find that it is an immense privilege to work with the families that we do. Um, they are so creative in the solutions that they find for their children and for their families. Um, and it is really, really an honor um, to work with them every day. Um, I also am really fortunate to work um, with the other folks in our lab who are so intelligent and so motivated and um, it, it, is, it is just really an honor. Um, in my future career as a genetic counselor, I'd love to also continue to be involved with genetic counseling education. So in the past, I've helped with some um, teaching at Boston University's genetic counseling program. Um, and I'd love to continue to be even more involved in teaching future genetic counselors uh, about a lot of the stuff that we talked about today um, and a lot of the other topics. Um, I think the education piece to me seems so important because it's just a great way to radiate knowledge. And then I also find it really meaningful and really fun um, to work with students as well. So those are my goals. Yeah, for sure, education is really what can touch many lives at once. And I can say that you're a good educator, I mean, stating this from our meetings in the ULAB. And also, um, I think that, yeah, what you've just said is inspiring. And I'm, I'm really lucky to have met you and I've discussed so many of these things with you during lunch breaks and whatever in Boston. So thank you again, Tori, for being here with me today and for sharing with us all your insights about genetic counseling. And I'm looking forward to discussing with you more and more ideas in the next few, hopefully, years as they come to life. So thank you again, Tori. Thank you so much, Luca. Um, and thanks for having me and uh, for wanting to talk about genetic counseling. It's really exciting. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail at thebiotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lukafuzarabassini.com. I'll also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.